Forum Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North and welcome to Forum Borealis and another episode in our Antediluvian series. Our guest tonight is the author, blogger and chaos magician Gordon White, who runs the very popular podcast Rune Soup. He is proponent for an innovative take on our ancient history that we're going to explore a little today. But let me first introduce our guest properly. Australian by birth, White's family has strong connections to the wider South Pacific. He spent much of his early years exploring and diving in Micronesia, Melanesia and Polynesia. He became interested in occultism at an early age following a series of intense dream experiences which he made his lifelong pursuit. His esoteric leanings found an inspirational overlap with his exploration of the Pacific, inspired by the likes of Graham Hancock's and other alternate researchers. This led him to study documentary production at a university level with a research degree in film and subsequently make an underwater documentary about Nan Madol and then go on to work for several news media companies in both hemispheres like BBC, Worldwide and Discovery Channel. Over the course of his career, he has also worked internationally for some of the world's largest digital and social media companies. After moving to London, he held senior data and analytics positions in such global companies like Yelp, Quip and Timeout Group, where he was global data director. White has presented at media events across Europe on social and data strategy, as well as the changing behaviours and priorities of Generation Y. During this time, he has parted with princes, been mentored by a former director of a private spy agency, lived on two volcanoes, dined in castles, dived on sunken cities, and even had a famous billionaire night buying bottles of champagne. He became an early blogger and gained huge success with his chaos magic blog, Rune Soup, that eventually turned into a podcast. Its website is one of the most widely read practical sorcery blogs on the internet. He engages with everything from anthogenes, synchronicities, UFOs, revisionist history, career guidance, graphic novels, the future of media, probability and divination to pop culture. Gordon White has the ability to cut to the chase and detect patterns and forces at play in the world and to propose hacks and magical interventions. He is generally described as smart, urbane, funny and worldly wise. The main mission of his work is the attempt to cohere an evidence-based magical worldview, combining history, paranormal research, the best available scientific research and ufology. 
He's been interviewed by most of the popular shows out there, like Richard Hoagland's The Other Side of Midnight, Skeptico, Aeon Byte, Gnostic Radio, Occult of Personality, The Richard Dolan Show, The Higher Side Chats, to mention a few, and of course, now, with the ultimate feather in his hat, the forum itself. Over the course of his journey, Gordon has had the privilege of speaking with some of the world's leading authorities in Assyriology, religious studies, genetic research, magic, psi research and ufology. His ventures ultimately led to the publication of his books, of which one, Starships, A Prehistory of the Spirits, our show tonight is based upon. This original book is a fresh breeze to a confined area and a defining text to the new magical renaissance. Albeit known for his grasp of current events, Gordon's ideas are based on a deeper understanding of our clouded prehistory. Starship addresses the question of who we are by tracing where we come from and by drawing out the stories and the spirits accompanied and evolved with us. The goal is the restoration of context. To this end, he applies his globally recognized data and demographic skills to realize a groundbreaking work of truly interdisciplinary research. Utilizing mythological, linguistic and astronomical data to reconstruct paleolithic magical beliefs, he maps them to the human migrations, explores which aspects of these beliefs and practices have survived into modern spirituality and what the implications and applications of those survivals may be for us. After almost two decades living in New Zealand and London, he now resides on a small permaculture farm in southern Tasmania, where, when he's not working on it, writes books and runs his podcasts and blog. But today, he joins us to account for his model of our human prehistory. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Gordon. Well, thank you very much. Now the tables are turned. and Exactly. You've the, been on my show. Yeah, for those who don't know. Now I'm on yours. And I think we're maintaining that record of, of podcast conversations between effectively the Arctic and yep. the Antarctic. That's, uh, that's quite a long call. Yep. We're stretching the tin can cord again. Yeah. But like... Um, I said to Alex, I used to disregard uh, this podcaster talking to podcaster thing. I never used to listen to that. I had bias against that. I thought it was, like I told him, one wanker jerking off another. <laughs> then I realized he made me uh, aware that it's actually can often be more interesting than uh, you regularly. I think you're both right, Al, because I, I kind of think the same as you in, in many respects <laughs> as well. So I think you're both right. Yeah, but like Alex said, we get a generalist perspective. If we've been going for a while, we have a lot of guests and, and we get a survey that's pretty rare. So at least if we're picky with the podcasters we interview, it can be pretty interesting. Yes. And as we just know from before you hit the record button, the conversations you have before the show are always really fun. <laughs> yeah, we should really, we should really uh, release those as bonus. Yeah. <laughs> that would increase the membership. But today you're not on us. A podcaster actually you're on as a regular old school guest ah, right. because if people don't know it you're an author too i am and uh, 
This show today is going to go straight into our series about antediluvian, and you have a very fresh and original take on that perspective. Probably be annoying to some people. Other people will find it quite interesting. So we're going to get that. But you know what the first question I have to ask you is, right? Um, was I a weird kid? Exactly. Were you weird as a child? <laughs> Uh, I suppose I potentially was. I mean, my my childhood was almost bucolic. I mean, I I grew up in um, coastal New South Wales in Australia. So my parents' house overlooked three beaches and it's obviously nice and warm and and what have you. So I didn't grow up anywhere. It it wasn't a school of hard knocks. It was a boring, bucolic, um, suburban childhood. But From a weirdness perspective, yeah, uh, my mother, uh, my father's a psychiatrist. My mother is an energy healer and channel and so on. And it's a sort of odd combination. It didn't really manifest that much in how we lived our daily lives, but it potentially suggests, I don't know if there's genetic interest in these kind of areas, but from about the age of 13, I sort of woke up one day. Uh, it was a Saturday morning like it is here now. I uh, just bolt upright in bed aware that I'd had some kind of intense dream experience, um, which I cannot remember. Mm. And I um, stole some money from mother's purse and walked down the hill uh, about three or four miles to three miles, I would say, to what we used to have back then, which was a very good independent bookstore and bought a bunch of what are now terrible books on, uh, on you know, occultism and neopaganism <laughs> and so on. And it was just off to the races from there. There was some Odd childhood experiences to do with hag attacks and sleep paralysis and that kind of thing uh, when I was about from about three to six. So me and dreams have always been quite intense. But yeah, that um, I, I guess I was precocious in my interests rather than weird in the sense of um, odd, if that makes sense. Mm. But if your mother was like a new ager, you you must have gotten some spirituality in with um, what you say, mother's milk. Literally none. (laughs) Yeah, well, potentially. Yeah, potentially. It was kind of funny because she had, before she got married, she told me these stories later, but um, she was an English teacher before she was married. And she, it was very 70s stuff she was interested in. She said, do automatic writing and lived in a haunted house and and all this kind of stuff. But then you marry a psychiatrist and you tend to put that stuff away (laughs) for a little while. Right. And interestingly, it was my kind of discovery of occultism and witchcraft and and what have you as a teenager that almost, I don't want to say like rekindled her interests, but in some sense, yes, it, I kind of changed the pH of the house that uh, allowed her to kind of uh, pick up her own odd behaviors again. And, and she certainly never looked back. So in a way, you might as well have agnostic parents then. Something like that, yes, because if you do live in a house like that, even though my my father is kind of, I suppose, technically a materialist, but not very good at it, uh, because like mother's friends are all psychics and and all that kind of stuff. So he's been confronted over the course of his married life, at least, with, you know, evidence that um, clairvoyance or whatever you want to call it is is self-evidently true and and all the kind of side effects that Mm. happen. I mean, you would know this, all the kind of side effects that happen when you acknowledge the reality of these phenomena. So he's just not very good at uh, materialism. I I actually don't mind that. I think he's not that interested in it, but he's sort of dimly aware that there's a reality to it. And I think that's generally fine. Isn't it ironic, Gordon, that so many people who devote their lives to study the psyche 
are materialists and so many people yeah. who devote their lives to study matter are spiritual or have a metaphysical outlook yes it's it's um yes ironic is exactly the right word for it yeah i know a lot of actually spiritual uh, psychiatrists um but they are a minority i think all in all it is the weird phenomenon i i think you know materialism fundamentalism are people who are basically just afraid of the soul and you see the opposite too you see the new age uh, fanatics are usually uh, they have a secret fear of matter yes i think that's quite true but today we're gonna uh, well it's gonna tie in a little uh, you issued a book that kind of went under the radar i say it deserves more attention uh, it's called starships your other books we can go get back to at the end of the show um but the interesting thing with this book i read it I don't know how many people who interview you have read it because I've been listening to some interviews with you other places and there's so much interesting stuff to discuss with you that we always end up other places but I'm going to try to stick to the subject today and rather have you back if you're game for that and then touch all the f- other fun stuff that's possible to discuss with you right sure sure let's let it's funny let's hope I can remember it uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, and it's, me I, too I'm kind of reminded of yeah <laughs> because we've been trying people don't know this but this is like what's it's the or third or fourth attempt Yeah, 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 yeah. But also the book came out in 2016. And uh, as I was flipping through it, preparing for our discussion last time when we had Skype issues and so on, I'm just sort of flipping through the book going, oh, yeah. And it kind of reminds me of that line in Indiana Jones of the Last Crusade where um, Sean Connery says, I wrote it down in the book so I didn't have to remember it. Right. Because I'm looking at it going, oh, yeah. And I just know Al's going to ask some really detailed questions. So let's do it. (laughs) Let's see what happens. Yep. And I'm also going to try to stick to the big picture. We have to balance both those things. Um, Sure. But now it's, you know, I read so many books. They send me books all the time. You know how that goes. So if I don't talk with people within a certain window... Uh, it's gone from my mind too, but fortunately yeah. <laughs> I have I have a lot of notes here, so I'm going to rely on notes today. And I was so, the first attempt we had, it's so pity that we didn't get to do it then because I yeah. was very motivated and I have everything alive in my head. I was very enthusiastic about it then. Mm-hmm. That's kind of gone now, So, I, but, but you know, we're professionals, I hope, so we're going to try to involve, in, it will probably come to us as we discuss, both of us, if we come back to sure. us, the egregore of the book, if you like. Wonderful. Yeah. So I have to say about your book, by the way, that... It's very consistent in your dry humor. Oh, thank you. I mean, that alone is worth it. Gordon has so many brilliant puns. You love it, folks. And especially when it comes to pointing out the weaknesses in the mainstream paradigms, but but also in the other direction. You're not actually, an, uh, I would say, an ancient aliens proponent. They're not going to find that, at least not in the traditional sense. No, because I would I would push back on that. I, I had uh, Richard Dolan on my show, and I've been on his as well. And I actually am an interventionist, which is the word I like for it. But I'm an interventionist millions of years back, um, okay. more like more like Prometheus, if you will. Well, hang on, when you say Prometheus, I mean the, the you, film. The film, yeah, right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So from the from the fundamental basis of the origins of life, the the balance of evidence simply is 
is overwhelmingly in in favor of something like directed panspermia. My one of the goals for the book, because when you were on my show, we chatted about similar influences in the 90s, Graham Hancock, Finger Prince of the Gods, that sort of thing, right? Mm. All still there. And what you find when you do alternate history is you need to do historiography. So you need to look at what it is at a point in the timeline the alternate historians are reacting to from a, from a paradigmal perspective, right? Mm. And if you look in aggregate at alternate history, it isn't very good at updating the things that it is reacting to. So there's a there's a lot of bad but a lot of good stuff in say Zechariah Sitchin. So what happens is ancient aliens theory builds on Zechariah Sitchin, but a lot of the things that he had he marshaled as ev- as evidence has subsequently found I would say better context in in actual archaeology. But the sort of the baseline idea of his, which is that there is something fundamentally odd about the emergence of Sumerian culture, is valid. But the sort of nuclear-powered rocket ships, mining gold kind of thing, probably less so. And that is my main concern. The goal for the book was to essentially attempt to update the baseline evidence that we can use for uh, uh, alternate exploration, if you will. Mm. Because I kind of look at, like you, I follow it all and go, it's so meandering. And it's it, it, the, the, the premise, particularly when you're looking at a show, and it's kind of unfair. It's a bit of a straw man to use something like ancient aliens as your uh, villain, mm. the, as in I'm referring to the TV show in particular. But it's also not because, I mean, the show is popular and long running. And what that means is that if you're a showrunner, I'm ex-Discovery Channel, so I know this stuff. Mm. If you're a showrunner and you have a popular show, you kind of have to, at the beginning of each season, look at places in the world where you can find an archaeological site and then show up and go, did aliens do this? Because that's what the audience <laughs> wants. And so the, the discourse <laughs> is kind of terrible, but the fundamental question of whether there is either non-human, which is uh, the broad category, and or specifically off-world interactions in either life on Earth or human culture, um, those are very uh, important and open questions. Mm. And I think the evidence is still there for some kind of interventionism, but it's not there like every, you, you can't go to Borobudur and go, no, this, this temple. Because aliens. Yes. Because that's, that's a going to, what I usually say is to people who are virgin to that show, not many left now, but I say watch the show because they often point to real mysteries, real anomalies. Sure. Right. But the explanation is knee-jerk because aliens, and, and they have to. That's what pays their bills. Correct. So so if you can disregard that, and that that's what I love with your book, because I was going to ask you as my first question, what possessed you to write it? And I did expect that your answer would be that you both wanted to, because there, there there's a lack in this field. There's a lack of a middle golden mean, if you like, a middle way. Because on the one hand, you have those cheap solutions where they explain everything either as aliens or as in theosophy, everything is the masters materializing mm. or as in the bankruptcy of academia gatekeepers. And I, th- I kind of think you balance between all those usual uh, explanations. Would I be right to assume that? Yeah, I think so. I think, and that's one of the, I guess the other failure when it comes particularly to alternate history is this, this again, it's another straw man, this knee jerk idea that everyone and everything in mainstream is wrong. And here are this, here's this ragtag bunch of, you know, genius pirates out there giving you the correct story. <laughs> and that's not correct. That's just fundamentally not correct. Um, and where we look at 
the big challenges, and you would understand this very well, the big challenges are in the kind of cosmology that uh, happens around something like archaeology. Because I don't, I don't ever want to go out into some sort of scorpion riddled desert and spend two months digging through a 5,000 year old garbage dump. <laughs> I will leave that to the grad students and I will look at the the data from this uh, empirical useful way of, of, of generating data uh, but it doesn't necessarily follow and this is kind of the point of the book, it doesn't necessarily follow that if you are good at that if you are good at that diligent data generation, that you're going to be good at data interpretation. It doesn't happen anywhere. Exactly. Nassim Taleb says something which I really, really like, which is it's sort of like, he, he's referring to it in terms of, obviously, finance and so on. But it's sort of like asking the carpenter who built the roulette table exactly. for gambling advice. And you know, that's the wrong person <laughs> to ask. This is the kind of puns that is permeating your book. I yeah. just have to say that. And, yeah. and it doesn't invalidate either the gambling expert or the carpenter to say, I'm sorry, Mr. or Miss Carpenter, I'm not going to go to you for gambling advice. It is a very nice roulette table. <laughs> and that's <laughs> and it works of, very well. Yeah, and, that, and, and you know this we're from like mystery school perspective and so on. The last, it's what Whitehead called our last 300 provincial centuries. The way we've categorized our methods of, of truth validation, our epistemology and so on, is, is this ridiculous atomized materialist yeah. um, over categorization and and i'm just talking because we're the ones who had the problem happen to us specifically northwest europeans i'm talking specifically about us we actually did and do have other ontologies magical ones metaphysical ones philosophical ones in which this information mm. i think finds a better home for that uh, that wider philosophizing and that's sort of the goal of the book Right. Um, no, I, I just have to say also that phenomenon you point to, people usually don't think about that, but it's such a good point, the one about the carpenter and the gambler, because you see it in so many fields. Yeah. I'll give you a short example. If someone has paranormal abilities, like here in Norway, there's like this humble, I guess he's Christian in a way, old guy who has great abilities especially for healing and then all the journalists go to him to try to explain it but he has no idea and that has always annoyed me that they always go to the people who manifest something and expect them to be able to explain what they're manifesting but are they so lucky that they have that gift in addition you know what yeah, i mean it's, it's the same of the kind of thing as the graduate student actually making a discovery now we're going to trust that person to explain this discovery and it, exactly. no thanks i'd rather buy your book and it, and it happens so rarely i think arguably it did happen with and this is one of those cosmic strange things about gobekli tepe for instance bringing it back to the book dr klaus schmidt who did in fact discover it yeah. was probably the, he unfortunately died, and that's what I mean by being weird and cosmic. Yeah. He died a couple of years ago um, back home in Germany in his pool of a heart attack. But he was very open to the kind of things that would be uh, at home on a show like yours or mine to do with, well, what are, what are these people doing? Yeah, but was he was he on the record? Yeah. Because uh, my impression is that he was it directly with Graham Hancock and stuff. No, but, no, no. Okay, how could he survive as an academician if he is open to this officially? I think if you find something that good. Um, but I also just think, <laughs> okay. I also just think if, 
it's rare, like it's it's rare to find. Um, but I think the idea that his career would be put at risk for it, like he's the guy who discovered Gobekli Tepe, I think mm. if he hadn't died, he could, um, mm. it, no one was going to take that away from him. Like if he'd lived, which he should have, unfortunately, another couple of decades, he would have spent that time in Turkey unpacking the site because it's it's a very large site and only a small amount of it has been unpacked and that's why and i like him as an academic because if people and even ones that i think the um the speculation is is too far away from the evidence so the like andy collins cygnus mystery stuff right so andy collins has been out there and and, and met klaus schmidt and whatever good but he would sort of be he would remain open to yes it's possible this this might have been used for drugs we don't know what else we're going to find because it's this giant hill and we've only dug a little bit of it and it's that that is an academic honesty and rigor that i like it's not saying no you're wrong um because that's mm. that's that's a statement you can't make if the site hasn't been excavated and so i really liked right. him and he's one of the rare sort of academics who would be able to do that and and it just kind of tying it back to our conversation it, they it would be lovely if we lived in a world where they're all like that but not only do we not it's rare unfortunately they seem to die yeah uh we're gonna go back to go back later because okay. your book is big on that uh, and we're also going to go back to bashing the mainstream academia but that will have to happen in another show as a main theme Now, I want to move on here because we have a lot to grab. And I want to start with the big picture. Good. Because we have a problem here in um, this field. Uh, I'd sum it up as uh, mythology vs. history. And many people, first off, many people don't even understand what history is. They regard it as a as if it's a material science, which it isn't. Like Tobias Churton told me in a show where I did with him. It's an interpretation art, basically. Mm -hmm. And mythology is the same thing there. People don't understand mythology. Uh, there's so many levels to it. I mean, it's it's just a pity that it has been, that the word myth has been equivalent to lies or untruths. And that's new. When in fact, that's in the last couple of centuries, yep. that's what, this is what one of the things the book hopes to dissolve is to, we need to realize that we are downstream from some fundamental metaphysical errors that happened with the rise of Cartesianism. And so mythology mm. now is synonymous with lying. Uh, and that is just insane. That's truly insane. <laughs> it's supposed to be a higher truth. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and people also fail to see another thing that I think we should inject very early in this conversation. And that's what we could maybe call the transformation of consciousness. Because that's what leads to the literalism either of the, oh, yeah. either of the very pathetic materialist interpretation of ancient culture or the equal literalism of the ancient aliens interpretation. You, you probably know Sean Jebser. He has a very excellent division of uh, what he calls the archaic consciousness, the mythic consciousness, the magical consciousness, and the technical consciousness that's ruling today. Mm. But the trouble is, 
that we all human beings have all four aspects of this consciousness in us. We've always had it, although the technical is overstimulated on expanse of the others. But to understand the past, I think it's very important also to understand that consciousness isn't the same today as it used to be. And when consciousness is different, so is perception. And that also leads to different manifestations. For example, the language of symbolism, which is so important when we're going to interpret old and stuff yes. and so that's why I want to start with our perspective about mythology versus history because if we're going to find explanations for what went down beyond our immediate perspective of history basically antediluvian as we call it or before the ice age you have so many explanation models you have the you of course know the the, the Joe Rogan approach of antigens psychedelia mutation Right, mm-hmm. and then you have the what we have mentioned already, the two basic of uh, materialist. Everything started on scratch, and we grew to become more advanced. That's debunked just by the facts. Then you have the interventionism thing. Then you have the DNA thing. I'd say that's uh, a way to try to add truth to our and and you you examine the uh, linguistics, mm-hmm. you examine symbolism. You examine kind of, I think, also the gene thing. And then we have the myth thing and the artifacts thing in addition. Mm. Now, the question is, do all these approaches, is it possible, you think? uh, And maybe you're making a case for that in the book. But is it possible to use all these tools we have to uncover the distant past and find some kind of coherent picture of what was going on? Um. It is possible, I suspect, if you sequence them correctly. So um, I've actually had uh, a couple of people on my show, Dr. Amber J. Seppi, quite recently. She um, just sort of did her PhD on how we how we think with and and learn from non-Western, like in an anthropological context, how we think with and, non, and, and work with non-Western ways of, of being in the world. Mm. Because what tends to happen if we try to look at uh, Amazonian plant law, when we bring it into the sort of Western sphere of what is allowed to be real and not, it's it breaks into pieces. So instead of having plant spirits and, and so on, what you have is molecules that are allowed to exist and be active ingredients. And so, and that's a failure. Empiricism is actually really good as long as you don't let it become a belief system, because it's not. It's, it's, it's one subset of a way of understanding one thing about the world. So what I mean by it's a question of sequencing them is like well what things do we actually know empirically that we can use to or that may provide illumination on paleolithic culture and that's where something we can use dna and linguistics and and so on we can use the data that's there and if you just sort of stack them um a picture emerges of uh, far more complex and and dare I say more human and more understandable ancestors from from the Paleolithic people we would not completely understand obviously but people who look a lot more like us uh, emerges when we start to look at at new ways of uh, interpreting DNA evidence and and linguistic evidence and and mythological and archaeological evidence and that's sort of the goal of the book. So yes, I think we can, and it's it's been one of those fundamental errors that emerged in the last three hundred years, particularly with the rise of imperial thinking, where um, if your culture didn't look like London, you were crap. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, but also from the lack of interdisciplinary. Oh, approach. absolutely. That's it's a scandal that that's not the go-to position. Yes. So, and, and the thing is, and what I find eternally frustrating is this kind of um, v. Gordon Child model of, of civilization going from less complex to more complex technologically, um, which is the sort of mid-20th century modernist way of viewing history, is wrong. And, and you will not find a historian or archaeologist today who will subscribe to it, but they it, that structure is nevertheless in their head. They can't get away from it because it's in our heads. So they know that that's racist. They know that the evidence doesn't match it. But nevertheless, if you're looking at how people interpret Paleolithic cultures or Denisovans or Neanderthals or so on, they, they don't start from the idea of, well, these are complex hominins like us. They still start from this, they're crap mm. and they probably didn't even have language and, and go from there. So the, the, um, the imperial hijack is still baked into their mind, even if publicly they learn, and it's correct, even if publicly they learn this turned out to be a racist idea and a lot of anthropology and archaeology in the 19th and early 20th century is sort of the handmaiden of empire because it gave scientific <laughs> justification for why the French and the British and whatever governed over all these brown people in, in the global south. And so they know all that, and that's all true. But nevertheless, this... Um, there's a structural hijack in the back of their minds, and it's because they're not allowed to, or they haven't personally, examined their foundational metaphysics about yeah. does matter have an interiority, what is spirit, all that kind of mm. stuff. And we have this coming. This is coming back to what I like about empiricism, and in fact, Skeptico, which we were talking about um, prior to hitting the record button. We're in this situation where empirically we have the evidence that empiricism is insufficient for describing reality. Like empiricism has brought us right up to the edge and we have near-death encounters, after-death communication, telepathy. We have all these kind of things that are empirically observed. Yeah, just for the listener who aren't familiar with the term empiricism, give them a short explanation. Oh, sure. So so empiricism is, is a, a, a like a sequence of it's a premise. Empiricism is a premise that uh, you can find out true things about reality based on sense data. And when you weaponize that further, you get to the point where the only things that, are, that exist are things that we can observe with sense data. So empiricism is mm -hmm. kind of this premise that allows things like the scientific method to exist. And we can certainly learn things about reality from sense data and, and, and scientific methods and, and so on. But it's, so that's not the problem. The problem is when you take it that next step. And by the way, this is a logical fallacy, which is hilarious mm. to me, because um, if you say nothing exists beyond sense data, that statement exists beyond sense data. So the only thing that doesn't exist beyond <laughs> sense data is the reality that nothing exists beyond sense data. And I mean, you're you're big on your mystery school stuff like Aristotle wouldn't have let that through. Like in, mm. in classic Greece, that's how basic in it classical is. Greece, it would have been like. Um, I'm sorry, get out of the symposium. You have failed. <laughs> right. But for some reason, it goes hand in hand with uniformitarianism. And maybe we should give a brief explanation of that too, because it's so important to understand these terms, because these are the ruling schools. I don't know what you mean by uniformitarianism. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. I can do it then. You do it. Maybe you call it something else. But it's basically... Uh, out of, um, I think it was uh, the 18th century, the 19th century, there was actually many 
spiritual-minded, I say, or religious-minded is better to say, uh, scientists, and they were uh, subscribing to catastrophism because that was the inherited oh, culture, yes, yes, religion, yes. right? Sure, yeah. You go. Now I'm, now I'm on then the same Then came page. this, okay, okay, you take it over from there. Right, so, and and in a way this was good, but in the in the 300 years, pretty much, depending on when you want to date it, but I date it from Descartes just because that's where most people date it from. But okay. in, in our 300 provincial centuries, as, as Whitehead called it, um, it was a process of – it began with a theological argument with amnesia. So what – people miss this. But what Descartes was trying to do wasn't to disenchant the universe. He was trying to prove God. And his his mm. proof isn't very good. But nevertheless, what it did was sort of split um, mind off from matter completely into this – uh, ethereal, immeasurable realm, and he kind of gave that to priests and God, and and, and it's an easy way of um, giving physical stuff to science, and that kind of carried on for about fifty years until, or a hundred years or so, and science suddenly realized, well, we don't need any of this non-physical theological stuff, and we can just kind of carry on. As part of that process, particularly hitting into the nineteenth century, the rigor with which this premise, which is wrong, was used to dismantle a lot of cultural ideas like Noah's Flood in this case. That uh, Noah's mm. Flood was retained because these people, for the most part, were Protestants. So we're talking Northwest Europe. Yep. So they were, yep. you know, they thought the Bible was more or less true until the emergence of these scientific schools that sort of said otherwise. And geology in particular had a battle because as geology emerged as as a discipline and i really like geology it sort of became yeah, fairly obvious that the world the timelines of the planet don't match the bible mm. and the sort of one of the last things to go was this notion of catastrophism which is important in the bible you have sodom and gomorrah being destroyed you have noah you have all that kind of stuff right mm. and so they're like there's no evidence of a global flood and it was it was one of those foundational statements, which is we look at things like the movement of tectonic plates and the building of mountains. And, and when we find fossilized shells at the top of Mount Everest, we know that that used to be the seafloor, but it moves very, very slowly. So you have this idea that nothing geologically happens fast. And that idea is also wrong. But it's it's funny. Now we've had to do in the 20th and century. And it's translated to culture immediately. Yes. And, and in the 20th century, we kind of had to do the opposite because we started to see more evidence of not just the Ice Age, but potentially how fast uh, climates can move. Mammoths with uh, undigested food in their bellies, etc. Exactly. And also the, the challenge with uh, people forget this, and it was just in the 80s, but people forget how difficult it was for the for the acceptance of the idea that the uh, meteor impact that sort of permanently changed the climate that ended the reign of the dinosaurs. That One of the reasons that was resisted for so long was we we inherited as like an attempt in an attempt to get rid of the Bible as a way of describing the world, probably good. We um, had this sort of slow moving cosmology with geology and and then try and that itself got in the way of science. And it's sort of funny. I don't know if you've had Dr. Sheldrake on, but he sort of has this idea that the first if you go to do a science degree in the first year, you should do nothing but the history of science. Mm. And I think that's really clever because that would, 
nothing in in academia would elevate scientific discovery more than giving scientists the context because i my cousin is a former oxford astrophysicist she's back in australia now and we would talk about the history of science and she's like i literally have a phd and i'm an astrophysicist at oxford and i didn't know this i'm like what the hell <laughs> and uh but it, it's yeah by the same token theolo uh, theologians should potentially have a um, a first year history of religion in in a way that isn't taught by theologians yeah. and uh and we might get some interesting ideas. But yes, mm -hmm. so one of the other challenges when it comes to understanding things like the end of the Ice Age and what can exist before it, we have this inertia of previous ideas and we have mistaken them for reality. And uh, and all ideas are provisional in, in, in many respects. That's not metaphysically true. But from an empirical perspective, all ideas are provisional. So uh, yes, we, th there's so many challenges that need to be unpicked. And if we don't yeah. know this, then you do end up with the peculiar manifestations of ancient aliens and, and all the rest of it. And it's just a pity because there's really, the, the story of mankind is is magical and very likely involves oh, sure. literal aliens and, and all this stuff. Yeah, your book is a, is a case for, for the magical story of mankind. But you say they, um, the ideas, it's not, the, the problem isn't that they even had different ideas. The problem is we, we don't even understand these ideas. The interpretation of those ideas, that is a real problem, I'd say. Yes. Especially when you put on materialist glasses. So the first attempt we need to do is try to understand the ancient ideas and that's where we're failing big time and again much of what you just criticized is you know the the baby going out with the bathwater when they wanted to, to get rid of the bible stuff then also mm. went catastrophism out which would is a healthy balance to the gradual uniformitarianism and that's also due to lack of interdisciplinary approach yes. because like you said geology it came into the scene and it cleaned up but then it became fundamentalism but today geology is having that secondary redemption function because even today it's starting to uh, disprove the cult of archaeology and egyptology and stuff geology can actually be the answer for us to to restore the record because it's going because people wouldn't probably think it but archaeology and parts of anthropology and and especially egyptology has become materialist sects and very simpleton sects even yeah i would say completely so. void of any materialist science so geology uh, can i think be used as one tool to restore the record is all i'm saying Yes, I think so. Yeah. Rocks are hot again. Um, and it's funny because geology has landed once again in in the cosmological hot seat. So rather than the Bible, you have, uh, and whatever you think about climate change and, and warming earths and so on, you, you have actual scientific disciplines that have evidence to contribute to that level of analysis. So I kind of see that as a sort of redux again of of geology not versus the bible but geology and 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 uh, a biblical way of life exploring each other there's something about rocks that uh, that keep coming back to uh, i don't know what's the word i'm looking for here that the that keep coming back to highlight where our cosmologies may have shortcomings mm. well put in your book 
you have a very central concept that we should uh, seize immediately. Uh, it's what we could call the Pangean, the Laurasian, and the Gondwana yeah. culture. And you mentioned Gordon Child, but I think it's important in light of your book because it seems that you're relying heavily on him. Also, to mention Dr. Witzel. Yes, sure. Uh, maybe you could start there. Uh, what's the difference between these chaps, and why should we know about who they they are? <laughs> So um, Dr. Witzel wrote a book called On the Origins of the World's Mythologies about, what is it now? So about almost 10 years ago. And he is, he's retired, but he was a Harvard Indologist, so studying um, the Vedas and, and, and India and, and so on, right? And he wrote this book, and it's marvelous, and it's one of those books you could only write at the end of an academic career, because... <laughs> If you spend an entire career looking at the mythologies of the world, and he did, there's sort of things, particularly as his career would have spanned, say, the last two and a half, well, the last two decades of the 20th century and a, and a bit of the 21st, right? Um, you are not allowed to have, well, grand narratives are suspicious at, at that point in time. So as we sort of moved out of that mid-20th century diffusionist idea that um, more complex and generally lighter-skinned cultures diffused technology and culture into less complex, browner cultures, right? Um, one of the ways we – and this is another one of those examples of it being a good academic development – but it was a temporary one. We essentially kind of landed in postmodernism with everyone invented everything spontaneously. It's sort of like separating the children when they fight. You have this, you have this. Everyone invented everything independently. And Political correct uh, interpretation. Sure, sure. And it might have actually been a necessary way to bash some of the more racially problematic ideas on the head. But it's also like eventually you have to reconfigure stuff. And this book is sort of saying, look – he did something remarkable. He essentially family treed the mythologies of the world, uh, and he split them into these, these these three schema and matched them to where humans were in their journey out of Africa to try and give a date for where these emergences were because they do line up. And this is so kind of fascinating to get. But you, he, and, and the, the the earliest one, which is the the Pangaean that you mentioned, he completely and he admits to this. He said, I've made, I'm making this up because we have no evidence at the top of this sort of family tree I've created for what it could be. But at the, at the more recent one, the Laurasia one, which happened about 40,000 years ago, you have the mythological motifs that look like something in the Bible or the Maya in Central America and so on. And it's sort of a beginning of the world to the end of the world. You have your world egg and, and, and Father Heaven and Mother Earth typically being separated and you have descending generations of, of divine children and and there's probably a trickster in there who gives civilization but what you have is this kind of coherent beginning of the universe to end of the universe model and the motifs are found around the world and it appears that they were picked up around the 40,000 year mark as a result if his hypothesis is correct and I think it is uh, broadly correct because uh, the other thing about this book that's so good is he's like look this is one person this is messy this is a first attempt uh Here's what I found. Obviously, some of the timelines and motifs and whatever are going to switch around. But it was one of those honest academic things. I was like, I'm going to put this book out at the end of my career because I'm a world expert on the mythologies of the world. And there are motifs that overlap. And the people who have these motifs have previously been genetically in the same – we know this genetically. They've been in the same parts of the world. So if we line these up, 
I think we can track the development of mankind's mythological experience of the world uh, all the way back to prior to leaving Africa. Now that, and even if the the, um, the schema is broadly correct, because the statement makes sense. Like we know that, well, for a start, brain cavities were in fact larger in the Paleolithic. So the idea that they were more dumb than us No, I, I agree just... with that. But, you know, intelligence <coughs> isn't tied to the size of your head. It's to, sure. to do with the thickness of the, I don't know the English word, but the brain bark, I think we call it. Um, sure. So the, the point is, though, that we have that we're morphologically not just more or less identical, but in fact that they have like advantages that we would, uh, how you say, that we think correlate with intelligence, right? So, mm, so the yeah. idea that they just didn't have language and were wandering around not thinking about the stars and the ocean and whatever. For 50,000 years, yeah, yeah. Yeah, is just garbage. And that's kind of why I opened with Gobekli Tepe because that's the proof of it. Mm. The proof is the first thing we did was kind of wonder what's it all about. So this is what the schema does. And what is so important and why I spend so much time talking through Dr. Witzel's hypothesis uh, is – this is one of the important things we need to baseline if we are going to be looking at non-human interaction with the development of human cultures and technology, be that aliens or spirits. Because if you remember the show, what you will find is like, well, why Why do the Mayans have a pyramid and why do the Egyptians have a pyramid? And there's a sort of four or five thousand year gap between them must be aliens. You go, well, or... Because if you go back 40,000 to 60,000 years, the, the people in both these areas shared geography, which suggests that there was at least some cultural transfer. How about we start with that? How about we actually baseline and develop an understanding of how humans may have – of human cosmologies and then go looking for the flying sources? And so it's one of those yeah, – Yeah, but it's easy to, to critique them on the why in the same way the mainstream archaeologist. But I, I think to be fair, we also need to point out that it's also as much – the how, and that's one of the big mysteries, and we're going to get to oh, that sure. later. But yeah, the how is interesting. The why um, may well be interesting, but the why I think has to emerge from a different data set. Yep. So you're absolutely correct that the how um, is uh, is is pivotal for. It, it's pivotal in its metaphysical implications. The the philosophical, the uh, the mythological and archaeological and genetic ones. I think we need to kind of just baseline. Well, what are the things we know in the sort of one third of the way through, or a quarter of the way through the twentieth twenty first century? We have these genetic data. We have these. I don't want to say mythological data, although it technically is, but like this mythological framework that may broadly be useful in analysis. We have. You know, and stack these up, and then go looking for it. Mm. And this—it's a remarkable achievement. I really do recommend the book to people. It's this enormous doorstop of a thing, and it's, it's this sort of fascinating way of of matching, and and just allowing you to think with, well, how? Why do we have these um, civilizing tricksters all over the world, and why do we have a giant snake in so many places, and all that kind of thing? Yeah, we're going to get to those. But Dr. Witzel's book, what is it called, by the way? On the Origin of the World's Mythologies. Does he only rely on myth, or does he also oh, it's not. relate to DNA and stuff like that? Uh, it's Well, that's the thing. So he kind of does a, uh, the, a similar scheme where you 
match what we know about the movement of humans out of Africa between 70 and 85,000 years ago to the and as a result, he maps that to the appearance of kind of myths in Vedic cosmology and in South American cosmologies and North Americans and 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 all that kind of stuff. So it's not relying on the myths. He doesn't actually – it's interdisciplinary, put it that way. Mm. So he has a lot of stuff. The parts that he misses, I think, are where, art, um, shall we say, alternate archaeology or alternate history is stronger, which is to do with island Southeast Asia uh, and to do with the sort of – true antiquity of that particular corner of the world and he i think under reports or under what's the word under emphasizes what i think is probably quite significant which is the memory of the end of the ice age as it's kind of tumbled through various mythologies around the world including the bible so i think mm. he under report he does sort of mention it but in a breezy way um but again it's a big messy book and it's a first attempt and and that's why it's not yeah. It's not solved, right? It's the beginning of a discussion. Yeah, and that's where the legitimacy of your book comes in, Andrew, because you, you try to rely on more evidence approaches than just that. But I think we, you should go walk us through the Pangean, Laurasian, and Gondwana concepts because they are big in your book too. Sure, yes. So um, these are the three... Uh, Epochs, and and I want to be clear that they're not civilizations or anything. Like these are academic terms that Dr. Witzel used to describe, um, I guess, macro changes in the world's mythologies. And he works backwards because you sort of have to if you're moving up the family tree. And the the Laurasia one is the one that emerged the most recently. So um, all Abrahamic religions are Laurasian. The majority of the world's religions now are right. And they typically, the motifs that you find in a Laurasian cosmology, which he thinks emerge, and he's probably right, although I would push it a little bit further southeast, somewhere in sort of southern Eurasia, which is a bit annoying because he calls it Laurasia, but anyway, oh. about 40,000 years ago. That's where that and, word uh, comes from, okay. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and it, it begins with a creation uh, motif of the entire universe, typically a world egg uh, or something like that. Father Heaven, Mother Earth being separated. We find that, of course, in Egypt. Uh, we actually find that in the Bible with the breath on the water in, in Genesis and so on. And that we certainly find it in Sumer and we find it in the Americas. And then you have, uh, oh, and of course, in, and then you have sort of descending generations of divine children who become kings or demigods or so on. And that motif again. Hang on, hang on. The, the gods perspective, it began with the gods, then the demigods, and then the royal lord kings. Is that is that a Laurasian theme? Yes. So it begins with the creation of the universe. Yep. World egg, father, heaven, mother earth. And if you we can use the um the, the Egyptian one is illustrative for this, right? Okay. Because what you have there is gods and demigods and then humans in this or, or sumer is the same kind of descending down into the human era and you find that again in the americas you find that in the vedas you find that in egypt you find that in the bible with the long lengths of the uh you know antediluvian patriarchs sure. and so on but the question is for this uh, grand unifold field theory how long back does this one go the youngest one Laurie? he speculates that this cosmology he speculates based on when all the human cultures 
that have these motifs and there's more of them you end up with a, a like a trickster bringing civilization and a dragon being killed and a, some sort of golden age in the distant past and a mm. flood and an apocalypse okay so it's he calls it he calls it the novel uh, the novel emerged from the earlier um kind of categorization called gondwana but we'll get to that which we, which he calls a forest of stories and we'll come back to that because it's important yep. um, but essentially you have a beginning to end full explanation of the universe emerging about 40,000 years ago. And this is based on the fact that if you look at 40,000, uh, yeah. Uh, and if you that look predates at the ice age, okay. Mm. It does. And that's where the flood thing gets interesting. Cause I, uh, I'll come back to that as a matter yep. of fact, yep. I don't, I think in the flood part, I, th it, it may well be there, but I think the, because of the uneven distribution of flood motifs around the world, I think there's a, a very good case dare I say open and shut, that a lot of those flood motif motifs are a memory of the end of the Ice Age. But we'll come back to that. Yep. So when you look at where the last time all the cultures that express these motifs, these this sort of novel of, of mythology, beginning, middle, and end, where the last time they were all in the one place was about 40,000 years ago in on that journey out of Africa, right? Because we Is this based on genetics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the out of Africa data, um, which, by the way... Okay, so you support the out of Africa hypothesis. Okay. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Um, mm. I actually spoke to some of the geneticists in Oxford who do the work, and I had all the alternate Christian, all alternate history questions for them. Uh, it doesn't tell us, because the, the failing with people's understanding of the uh, out of Africa research is that they think it's the same as the mitochondrial Eve research or the origins of mankind in Africa research. Both of those things are not necessarily correct put it that way mm. uh, but what you have it's actually a very simple process it's just quite expensive to to kind of do mtdna tests of people around the world and and kind of guess because it's highly mutative it's it's an underreported guess of 70,000 years but the a group of people left africa between 70 and 85,000 years ago kind of turned right and jogged along the coast of india down into southeast asia and got and basically got to australia within a few thousand years um how, how long back do they say this happened then well that's the trouble because because uh, mitochondrial dna is it, it's very good as a marker for this reason but it's so mutative like mm. that you have to actually shrink the generations because so, i asked them this because here's the thing mitochondrial eve we have uh, an african woman of about seventy-five thousand years ago right um it's not mitochondrial adam genetic adam so the the last kind of universal father of people who lived outside of africa is in a different part so it's sort of southwest of where we think mitochondrial eve was and is a uh, hundred and five thousand years ago, last time I looked. So I asked, like, why is mm. there a thirty-five thousand year gap between the last kind of universal father, as far as we can tell, and universal mother? And I, I was in Oxford asking these guys this for research for the book, and I said, well, um, it costs about a hundred at the time. It costs about a hundred dollars per sample to do kind of like paternal lineage, and it costs a dollar fifty per sample to do mitochondrial lineage. So we have so much more for that. So trivia. Um, we have so much more tracking mothers and grandmothers back, but mm. that DNA is more mutative. So what they have to do is under-report each generation. So when the scientists are talking about it, they say we left 70,000 years ago. They mean that that is the latest possible time we've left, but there's a 30,000-year window in that. So because they have to shrink the generations to kind of mathematically guess at the mutation rate, it's between 70 and 100,000 that we left uh, Africa. People who don't live in Africa 
uh, descended from this expedition sometime between 70 and 100,000 years ago. My next questions are as followed. I'm like, what if, would we be able to find people who had left earlier and died? And they said, no. Hmm. Obviously not, because we wouldn't have any. We, it'd be like looking for a, hay, a needle in a haystack to try and find those motifs if you didn't have any of the data from a campfire site somewhere or, or, or all that kind of thing. So I had all the questions that, and this is kind of one of those points about, well, let's get the science right before we do the alternative explanation. Uh, so I had all those questions. Yeah, important. Yeah, because there are, and I know them, like particularly in Australia, there are sites in Australia that are not just a little bit older, like tens of thousands of years, 150, like we have off the coast of Cairns, which is in uh, Queensland, we have a, a change in the chemical composition of pollen found in the seafloor, which indicates artificial burning. It's 150,000 years old. So they're completely fine with this. They're like, it's not the scientists doing the research. It's when you get to quote unquote science journalism, which is yeah. essentially just idiots republishing press releases mm. that we get errors in the story because i i brought all this stuff up and they're like yeah yeah like what do you want me to tell you like these data show that the people who are alive outside of africa are descended from this expedition so the data are good and it tells us only that it doesn't tell us how humans were made it doesn't tell us where humans were made it doesn't tell us if that happened only once it doesn't tell us any of that stuff it just tells us how people moved around the planet whether it was populated by others or not <laughs> over that particular journey. So, so to, to see if I get this straight then, so it's not uh, an origin, it's not a genesis no. explanation, but no. it says that those who are alive today at one point can be tracked back, reduced to having wandered out of Africa at one yes. point. Maybe several points, maybe many strains died out, but that's all they can say. Yes, it, it is just... And that's 105,000 years ago. Between 70 and 105,000 years ago, a small group of people mm. left Africa, turned right, jogged along the coast, got to Southeast Asia, island Southeast Asia, which was, of course, a giant and now sunken continent, which is kind of the point yeah. of the book um, at the time. And it was from there that we, that we can fold in the linguistic data and start to see that that was the first instance of technological complexity, uh, uh, increase in technological complexity that we can measure with linguistics on that journey outside of Africa. And it lines up with the emergence in Dr. Witzel's research of the Laurasian novel. Now, he puts it somewhere in India, but of course, he's an Indologist. Of yeah. course, he's going to put it in India, right? Uh he was probably un unfamiliar with the Berkeley research that shows that. And this is the kind of stacking of it that gives you – so what what the Laurasian mythology might – let's put it in antediluvian alternate history terms. What the emergence of the Laurasian mythology may broadly indicate is, in fact, shall we say, the beginnings of, quote-unquote, Atlantean civilization, mm. not its end. Okay, but before we, we go on with the uh, Laurasian, Pangean, and Gondwana, which is very central and we're going to explore, I, I still want to take this, explore this detour a little more because it's important. Because did you ask them, what about the Neanderthals? And, and before you answer, oh, uh, because yeah. it's so important, because... Today, we know that people living in Africa are the only people south of Sahara who, who doesn't have the uh, DNA of the uh, Neanderthals. And I want to say one more thing. When you sure. point to the racial and I also say cultural bias that is so permeating this field, there is a, an even worse case. And that is precisely the Neanderthals because they have to somehow they have to 
latch on to the notion that yeah. they are, are a different species because they started out, you know, depicting them as sub monkeys. Yeah. And then evidence has forced and forced and forced. Oh, they had advanced thinking, they had burial, they had religion, they had music, they had matriarchy etc et i think we got i think we got western magic from them so we have neanderthal caves in europe that are basically magic circles right so i i if you look at the fact like i don't even and that predates hundred thousand years doesn't it yeah yeah well see this is this is an excellent question al because we have two sort of like speciation challenges when it comes to other hominins Right. Because one, we keep finding them. So if you're kind of looking at before the end of the Ice Age, it's like some sort of Lord of the Rings world. We have hobbits. We have all these different kind of like broadly. Giants. Yeah. Um, And as I'm sure you're aware, because if you're asking the Neanderthal question, there are some alternate researchers and even some just rogue mainstream mainstream ones who are like, look, I don't think the Neanderthal and 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 us are different species. How can they be? As long as we we know we found children that are mixes, we know that. That's so. This is a speciation challenge. This is yep. this is actually one of those imperial categorization challenges yep. that it, it impacts all biology. Exactly. So you're absolutely correct on that. Now, did I ask them about it? I did, but I asked a very specific question mm-hmm. because at the I can't. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to argue with Oxford geneticists about like I think in the end, which I do. <laughs> no, no. But like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think you. I, I think this is an over-described morphological difference. I don't think it's a different species. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing. I, I expect we'll find with the Denisovans. What I did ask them, and what I did find out, because here's the other kind of challenge. We we call the Denisovans Denisovans because they were found, a finger bone was found in a cave in effectively Siberia. And Siberia is again one of those places where you kind of think cavemen live. The trouble is, it's just a finger bone. That's a piece of evidence. The highest level of hominin genetic admixture, to put it another way, humans that have the highest percentage of Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA is found in island Southeast Asia and Oceania. Now, if you have the highest level of genetic admixture, what means is that you have the longest period of time in which Denisovans and Neanderthal and us banged and had children. Mm -hmm. And that is where we have a sunken continent and a uh, 40,000-year-old development in cultural complexity. And although he thinks it's in India, but it's his guess, we have the the emergence of Laurasian mythology, but I think, and also let's not forget, in this corner of the world, defying all explanation is of course Homo floresiensis or the Hobbit. Mm. So it's not just that we were banging ones that looked kind of like us, <laughs> um, which is the Denisovans and Neanderthals. There are these weird Hobbit ones, and here we also have, of course, um, Gunung Padang and and carved mountains that look like proto pyramids. So, what the hell? Yeah, but it's ironic that Blavatsky, who has been so popoed and certainly not uh, accepted in science, she was onto this probably because of, she did actually have, she had access to documents. That's another story. Interesting. Yeah, she did, and we can take that after the show. Because my explanation... 
Yeah, my explanation for that would have been much like it is for things that I think have been over-described in alternate history, like the Piri Reyes map. Um, I what if it was remote viewing? Like we have the evidence for that. What well, if okay, she... maybe maybe it's a case of both. Maybe she had some yeah. real documents and she got higher inspiration. But the point is, she said all this in her last edition of the Secret Doctrine. If you read it, it's so uh, redemption and fun to read because although no matter what we think of her paradigm and her project she really went into battle with the Darwinists of her time and she raised many good points and I've been on to the Neanderthal thing ever since I read that at the age of 16 <laughs> nice. and I've just <laughs> seen science confirm and confirm and confirm her claim which was that it was just uh, I think she argued actually that they had uh, what we called uh, English disease, I'm not sure what <laughs> <laughs> translates to it, you probably don't call it that <laughs> Funnily enough Being English, uh, we say that, so in, in New Zealand and my old boss used to call pedophilia the English disease. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was that bad. But no, uh, no matter, the, she argued it was a part of the human species. And back then it would be ridiculous because yeah. back then they were supposed to be these low, broad brutes, right? Yeah. But now... But we thought that about Africans. We thought that about Australian Aborigines in the 19th century. So yeah, that too. It, she's completely correct. Uh, well, not completely correct. I, when I look at evidence like that, this kind of tips me back into almost a skeptical land. Like we, we know we could we, we demonstrate that telepathy and remote viewing and things work. And then all of a sudden we have these people who claim to have, you know, let's just call them magical powers. All of these people have made assertions a hundred and something years ago that are broadly accurate. Mm. It just seems to me the most parsimonious way it might, there might be documents. We'll talk about it after. I, it. I know there is, but you don't, yeah. you don't even need them. You, you actually no, don't okay. need them for the model to work. Like what you have is, well, here's this woman who spent, and as, again, I'm not a theosophist. I, I actually quite like Blavatsky as a person. I think she's fascinating. Mm. But um, here's this woman who spent her entire life doing these techniques. Well, she's going to get some hits. Come on. You know, <laughs> I, I, think, I, think that, I think that's entirely fine. Where we fall down as a, as a, as a broadly described community is to marshal that as evidence and it's it's actually backwards no but that's so. where the artifacts comes in and also the dna because if you do have documents that are very very old like pre-vedic or proto-vedic proto-sanskrit i mean yeah then uh, obviously we have to see what they say because they are closer to the origin and if she or anyone has you know close donna all that stuff if we have uh, evidence like that sure uh, the claims of the channelers or, or the clairvoyants or whatever we're going to call them aren't enough uh, doesn't count as evidence but when evidence stack up and confirm it that's the interesting part that's when documents and artifacts comes in because they are the evidence and then we have to re-examine the claims coming uh, from metaphysical sources too. Yeah. Although I'm not a f big fan of using that as a big... I, I kind of entertain metaphysical sources and, and your book, Starships. And that's the w weird part. It's not... <laughs> It's not a, a really an anthropological take. It's more a book meant for magicians. We're going to get back to yeah. that too. Yeah. Yes, but th is. that's when it gets interesting because then we have to entertain seriously. Okay, if these people were onto it, maybe there's other aspects that we haven't confirmed yet that they're also onto. And if it's coherent with all the other evidence, like the mythology, the linguistics, the genes, then we really have to re-examine what, what we believe about these things. And that is, that's based, as I said, that's the goal of the book. It's, I'm not 
trying to solve anything in the sense of um, X marks the spot, here's Atlantis. It's more, <laughs> well, well, here's, uh, yeah, here we need to re-examine reality based on things that we know, like that we've empirically demonstrated and where they align with things that have metaphysical implications. So that's why it's a magical book. And there's a political aspect to it in a weird way. So one of the things I say in the book, which I think is very important, because it's mm -hmm. published by Scarlet Imprint, and they do amazing um, occult books. It's 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 a beautiful, it's an actual beautiful object, which I can take no credit for, because um, I didn't obviously publish the book. I just wrote it. Yeah. Uh, but if we, we used to tell these stories, and by we, I mean people like you and me, Al. If you don't know and tell your own story, someone else will tell tell it to you. Mm. And that is what's happened to us. That is what, that's why you have these beaming morons like, um, you know, Dawkins and whatever yeah. telling me my story. Like we used to do, we did this for thousands of years and their foundational premises are wrong. Mm. So, you know, we've all kind of, it's time to pick the ball back up, frankly. You do an excellent job out of that. And I, to a large extent, I'd point to your book as, the one I would be most sympathetic to, but I have a couple of beefs. I didn't plan to introduce them yet, but the first one is, the first nitpicking here, where we may disagree, is precisely the Neanderthal enigma, because I don't think you actually take that on, and that's a criticism. No, I don't. I, I don't. And yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Scarlet Imprint, um, I was writing my book at the same time that uh, Peter Gray, who's um, one of the two people, the other one being Archistus, who... Uh, actually are Scarlet Imprint. And he was writing Lucifer Princeps at the time. And it's sort of a, he was kind of doing what I did to it. We were joking. I'm doing for Atlantis what he's doing for Lucifer, which is <laughs> kind of giving a better, um, a better history of it and its implications, right? Uh, and so we, we caught up once, this is when I was still in London, we caught up once in Soho and I'm like, how's the book going? And he's like, I just sort of, his eyes bulged. And I'm like, yeah, I recognize that feeling because you to tell one part of this story you have to tell the entire history of the world and and pull out a bit <laughs> yeah. and he's like that's exactly it because it is it's not obviously it's not a history of the world but i have to go back 150,000 years and a lot has happened in the last 150,000 years so criticism accepted there's not i, I you kind of had to pick your battles and uh no no but you, it's not just that it's it's void because i mean you can't say everything i agree but it directly interferes with one of your main premises of the book, which is the southeastern origin thing. But we'll get to that. But you see what I mean? It's it's kind of data. That... I don't think it does. I don't think okay. it does because okay. we also have the the linguistic evidence in Gunung Padang. So I don't think it directly. It, it the humans that left Africa weren't traveling through an empty landscape. We, the Denisovans and Neanderthals and whoever else we end up finding uh, were out there. So I don't think it does at all. Um, okay. And it's because I have stacks of evidence. What uh, the criticism that I will accept is, and I couldn't put it anywhere, is, and, and some other, kind of, you know, previous alternate historians have looked into quote unquote Neanderthal civilization. I hate the, I hate that particular C word. Mm -hmm. I like the other one. Mm -hmm. um, you mean culture? I, I, no, 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 no. I was making a rude joke. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> never mind. I, yeah. Okay. Move on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so but I couldn't I couldn't put that anywhere. But I I don't think it. Uh, I think the um, the emergence, the first emergence outside of Africa of of cultural complexity that we can find, 
uh, being island Southeast Asia, I think the case is good there because it has Dr. Joanna Nichols' sort of second expansion research. And and also um, the cave art that's found in Java, the sort yeah. of half a million year uh, old carved mollusk, shell, mollusk shells in the same area, Homo erectus. And, and again, the hobbits and, and all this kind of stuff suggest and the celtic it seems that they are the origin to the celtic ethnicity the oh, who knows who like it, it, it yeah it's actually not my area in that sense they completely look like celts yeah it could be yeah but anyway um, let, let's let's move on uh about the pangean and the gondwana but it's valid. it's absolutely it's valid i couldn't put it's already one hundred and ten thousand words yeah. uh i couldn't put my speculation of what Neanderthal, quote unquote, civilization and where it comes from is. But I'm as I'm very interested in, interested in that research at the London Occult Conference, whatever that was, 2016. Mm. Um, I gave a presentation that relied very heavily on those sort of magic circle caves and stuff that we found with Neanderthal. So I'm I'm very sympathetic to it. Bear but the cool. book is the story of how we, um, how we sort of stack the empirical evidence that we can and and sort of give that to the world of magicians and and alternate historians that say look this is in fact there is some good stuff it's just been poorly interpreted that has emerged empirically that we can use and we should because there are questions that need suing but i think it's racist to exclude that data point which is the neanderthals i think it's uh, no not from you though but you know in mainstream uh, anthropology disregarding and and keeping them as a different species for so long trying to force yeah you're probably right um the it'll be one of those i hate using the word paradigm change but uh, eventually we will come to a point where sort of officially the it'll start with the neanderthal and us divide will be erased and eventually we will come to that point and all of a sudden all these different data um, will change will change the story. It still doesn't impact the fact that you you may I mean we all have Neanderthal blood, but it still doesn't impact the fact that you can um, you can genetically trace your um, part of your lineage back to these people who moved around the world uh, out of Africa. So do you know what I mean? Yeah, but you say we all have Neanderthal blood. Um, apparently, people south of Sahara doesn't. That's what I mean. Yeah. So, but that—that's an indication that we who left Africa, genetically admixed, slashed, banged with right. the D- Denisovans and Neanderthals once we left Africa. That's right. why it's not there. And that's probably so we, also why they think that's where we originated because they don't have that admixture, and then they think that's the yes, pure. Yes, and and that is a misinterpretation of the data. Yep, and that's that's a bad one. But what what the data do show is that we mixed with. Other hominins, which is Denisovans and Neanderthals, once we left Africa, and more importantly, most of that mixture over the longest period of time happened in island Southeast Asia, well, what is now island Southeast Asia, but was, of course, Sundaland, or a continent twice the size of India, that it was well, a landmass that has sort of sunk at the, at the end of the Ice Age. So I don't think, mm. um, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe like he and I honestly don't know this because the data aren't there. Maybe when our little colonist expedition out of Africa hit island Southeast Asia, they found a fairly developed and probably did fairly developed Neanderthal, potentially even Denisovian, Denisovan rather um, culture, 
culture cultures maybe like mm. i do think like like i said i think we learned magic from them if you, if mm. you look at the that, that cave it's a magic circle in a mm. cave mm. <laughs> So I think they taught us magic. Yeah, they had ceremonial berries. Yeah, they course. had flutes, which are pretty magical. Yeah, and interesting. They had, they sailed the Mediterranean. They had they they actually were a seafaring smaller seas as far as we can tell, but they had boats. Like this right. isn't you know yeah yeah. And and one last thing about them before we move on to the great picture, and this is just a, a, a anecdotal observation, but. If they are the origin to the gingers, basically, <laughs> which yeah. much seems to, I mean, some even think they're the origin to the Asperger phenomenon. But if they are this, then have you seen children of um, gingers when a, a ginger and an Afro black has a child? That would be genetically the most different. And, and those children look like a Natalia new species. No, no, I'm sorry, not species, but um, ethnicity. I hesitate to use the word race. But I know. And, and, and that makes sense because they're so different. The, the, the one without the Neander gene and one that apparently is the direct ancestor of Neanderthal gene. See, no, I haven't seen that, but I'll, I'll tell you something Very interesting. interesting. Um, I'll tell you something about the sort of Spanish and French and then English colonists into Melanesia. Mm -hmm. So we're talking in the sort of Samoa area. Yeah. They would encounter, and it was particularly the missionaries who would encounter this, the Spanish ones. They'd, they'd hit these Pacific islands and hear these sort of beautiful brown Mel uh, Melanesians. And some of them would have red hair, red curly hair. And right. obviously because they were missionaries, they thought, well, this must be where the lost tribe of Israel <laughs> showed up. Yeah, and it's it's again that kind of like dumb uh, biblical observation, but we can extract that and go, well, what were ginger kids doing, <laughs> <laughs> or brown kids with ginger hair in in Melanesia? But of course, as I just sort of mentioned, the highest level of hominin genetic admixture is found right there. Right. So there you yeah, go, Denisovians. But what about uh, Australian Aborigines? Uh, isn't many of them supposed to also have blonde hair and blue eyes? Yeah, sometimes you can get. I am. I, this is why I went and asked. I had like a list of questions, um, and I saved all the weird ones for the end. Yeah. But like, I am actually not a geneticist, so I know that there are other ways that. Or other explanations for right. why that kind of stuff can happen. Right. But also what's what's emerging in, and rightly so, what's emerging in, in our understanding of uh, Australian Aboriginal history is, in fact, how connected they were to different parts of the world anyway. So you, 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 they, they were visited, what was it, 4,000 years ago by India. Um, so Yeah, we know the Maoris have European ancestry, partly. Well, I think you also touch I, upon that in the book. I th uh, might not be mine, but I think okay. here's what's so interesting to me about what we can learn. And what's fascinating to me about this is I'm very Dr. Sheldrakean about what genes and DNA actually do. Mm. Like, I, I, I don't think just because we can see them move about the world that they are at all an explanation for kind of how life works. It's that famous Terence McKenna line. That's like saying you understand Los Angeles because you have the phone book. It's just, <laughs> it's not correct, but like it's still data. And, it, and one of the things it is very useful for is showing how populations may have moved historically. And so you, you kind of, you, you hit the ideological problem and that's why I like the geneticists so much is they don't care what the historians think yeah. because history is a humanities subject and they actually have, 
And this is one of the areas where I like hard science. Um, they actually have the hard science going, I don't know what you want me to say. This is what the hard science says. So update your stories. Like, but they don't, they don't even care. Yeah, but then there's conspiracy theorists, especially white supremacists who doesn't agree with what they find and think there's a political spin to it. But yeah. you actually say it's the opposite. They do as the geologists. They just say, this is what we found and deal with it. Yes, because one of the one of the um, geneticists I spoke to, I was talking particularly about Egypt, and he said, "Look, and we're in Oxford, and we're sort of around the corner from the Ashmolean." Mm. And he's like, "Look, it's a humanities subject." Because I was sort of telling him about some of the geological information and and whatever, and he said, "Look, it's a humanities subject." Like, and the hard science types don't care <laughs> what mm. the Egyptologists guess at. They, it doesn't. They just sort of let it go over their heads because, they, one, they're not emotionally involved in it because I don't think their personality works that way. But they don't even credit it. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, clock is ticking. Uh, I suggest we leave this uh, detour now and then you walk us through the Pangean and uh, Gondwana and then we take a short break, okay? Sure. So we've, we're back 40,000 years with the emergence of a... Of, a kind of cohering of a collection of different um, mythologies or mythological motifs into this story. Now, that emerged out of the sort of layer, if you will, before it. And this is the belief system that uh, Dr. Witzel thinks we had with us when we left Africa. And so he thinks it happened, this one maybe goes back about 65,000 years. And it's it's a... Um, he calls it a forest of stories. Is that Gondwana? Yes. So the, again, and it's, I, I want to emphasize if people are kind of only half listening, we're talking about Gondwana and Pangayan. Um, he's using geological terms, but that doesn't obviously mean that he's using geological timelines. He's just trying to give you a, a sort of metaphor of, of how these things sort of worked and split. So the Gondwana belief system, his guess is based on its the, the spread of the motifs, it's about 65,000 years ago. And rather than having a, an apocalypse and a creation of the universe, it has a, a, a continuous creation. This is interesting to me and potentially for you. Al. The Kabbalah then? Well, not – so the no, because the Kabbalah has a um, beginning of creation. Um, right, but that it's ever unfolding. Yeah, but that's different to – like the Gondwana idea is that there was never a beginning. Right. Um, so it, it like just cycles. Yes, or not even that. Like it, the 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 universe just is. Okay. And it may well have a sort of distant high god. But what I find fascinating about the Gondwana belief system, which you find in places like New Guinea and Australia and so on, where the universe has always existed, there is no explanation for why it's around. Which is what Kabbalah has that. Um, so it's it's the but, but is shamanism closely tied to the Gondwana? No, uh, shamanism. It is. There there are more motifs in say Siberian shamanism that come through from Gondwana, but it still has the Father Heaven Mother Earth separation kind of stuff. Okay, so even shamanism is Laurasian. I see. It. Yeah, okay. it's it's older than that. Like and and so you do wow. have a distant high god, but and probably a civilizing trickster. But you have a totemic origin of mankind and it's very commonly a tree so as you can mm. kind of see these motifs will show up in Laurasia and then well we're in Laurasian mythologies now but like uh, if you family tree them back and look for the things that are the most universal you have civilizing trickster distant high god 
a non-beginning to the universe, which I find, and I know you like this kind of stuff as well, I find interesting from a kind of classical Greek metaphysical perspective because that was the question one of the questions was mm. has it always existed is is are you an eternalist or or is this place made mm. and the earliest belief system we can find they're essentially eternalists and you have a distant high god and civilizing trickster and, and that's about that's about it in terms of what you can so the civilizing trickster has survived into gondwana oh backwards 65 backwards, it gets yes, better yes <laughs> wow. it gets so those at that point he's kind of run out of so 65,000 years ago, he has speculated as to what our mythology was, and it's what I just said. Yeah. Um, now he's at the point where he – I'm going to say he guesses, mm. and he does guess, but let's be clear, it's an educated guess of someone who was a Harvard Indologist. So it's not me guessing. No. So he makes up the next one. Because he's kind of run out of this is what this happens in linguistics as well. As you get further up the family tree, there are fewer and fewer connections, right? Because it obviously has to start with someone. Sixty-five thousand years is as far back as he can get, but it's obviously not the beginning of the story. So he builds what he thinks, and he's very honest about this, which is to his credit. He's like, I've invented this. This is what I think mankind's first belief system is and he calls it pan again he disregards of course the neanderthal yeah. because there we actually have data but he disregards that right um i think you will find because i did that the pangaean data um because he so he calls the what he speculates is mankind's first mythology so what we thought of in africa before we or how we experience the world is a better way of describing that mm. before we left, right? I mean, he says this is probably about 150,000 years old. And again, guess, right? He means the origin of the Pangaean or, or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I would speculate okay. it's much, much earlier than that. Yeah, but he yeah. gives it that. Because remember, he's, he's, he's Harvard, man, you know. He's mainstream. Sure, sure, <laughs> sure. sure. Right? But still, it's still good. Uh, I mean, he, he still thinks out of the box. So from 65,000 to 150,000 would be the Pangaean. Yes, and and he Han Gaian, and this is where it kind of comes back to a better interpretation of ancient aliens. He thinks that there was the Pan Gaian belief system has a high god departing Earth for a pre-existing heaven at some point. It sends down a trickster emissary, right? Mm. So again, civilizing trickster. Mankind violated some sort of taboo. Oh, the fall. Um, so there's, there's, yes, the fall is 150,000 years old. And he thinks based on the, the global distribution of it, there was some notion of like a well of souls, sort of afterlife and a giant snake, which may or may not have been the same thing as a trickster. So hmm. if you get 150,000 years back, our belief system is essentially we interacted with a trickster emissary that came down from the sky and I and taught us things, and either that was the fall, or we disobeyed what right. we were taught, and there was a, a fall. And that is what a Harvard Indologist found when he family trees back up the mythologies of the whole planet, and again mainstream to 150,000 years ago. And what is good about I think magicians and alternate people reading a book like Starships is, I I do say like. I, I give magical eyes, if you will, to the data that he's there because you're never going to get it from him and you're never going to get it from geneticists. And that's fine. It's back to the, the roulette wheel, right? Mm. This is what this is what the roulette wheel maker has come up with. And you go, well, that's interesting. That's very interesting that as far as a, a Harvard Indologist is concerned, our oldest belief system is 
um, should be familiar to, and I'm not saying this is the case, but it should be familiar to people who are Ancient Aliens fans. And because of that, well, what's the answer? Did it happen in some way, shape, or form? Or the fact that it is globally distributed, that we have messengers coming down from heaven to teach us things, is it because we've had that story for 150,000 years? Or did it happen? Or is it both? Mm, yeah, that's a classical. Mm. Yeah, uh, you have the same problem with Philosophia Perennia, right? Sure. If it's really a archetypal, universal, objective, valid uh, impulse, you w- it's not just that you will inherit it directly back in time, but it's also that you can tap into it anytime, anyplace, and, and that will yep. cloud the problem of is this a physical lineage 100 or is it a spiritual 100 pouring down <laughs> lineage is it a lineage from above or from behind you know and we absolutely and i i have that real problem with a lot of alternate history because they have sort of swallowed the materialist line before they began right. their work right. so that they have to stretch the credulity available in the evidence to say that you you have a um you have evident like I, I don't know like a secret society that lasts thousands of years or whatever like that and if there's not the evidence for it like it might have happened but it doesn't need to have happened no. for the um the the cosmology and the information to survive and it's the same thing with the sort of extraterrestrial version of ancient aliens if you if you look at the the improbabilities of in particular giza but there are a bunch of them around the world as you know if you have swallowed the materialist tea before you look at the improbabilities of 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 how giza was constructed then the only thing you're left with is physical aliens because you're a materialist there are other ways that this could and probably did happen yeah, unless you accept uh, ancient advanced civilization theory as a sure. competitor to the ancient aliens. But you, you're right. But doesn't Alter- that just push the timeline back? Doesn't that just yeah. push the timeline back? And, and you have to ask that question at the beginning of the Atlantic. Still the chicken and the egg. Yeah, exactly. But but you have um, that. There's, that's a trap then. That's a materialist trap that alternate history people can walk into then. And I think a lot uh, That you don't find with people like Blavatsky or magicians or shamans yeah they are will be the diff uh, the other foot in, in this picture then yeah i hope so mm. I hope that's the general idea <laughs> okay let's let's take a break and we'll go more into these concepts in part two uh, cool. and we'll also revisit gobekli tepe because your book is big on that and i also have a lot of notes that we can't go through i think but we'll try uh, maybe we can touch upon them, but not the depth they deserve, though. But let's take uh, a minute, make some coffee, and uh, go into depths in part two. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks. 